Welcome to our Hope Talk of the Week. Yep. It's Wednesday and the talk's coming out today uh, as a video and as a podcast. And uh, Alice is speaking. This is a third in our series on purpose. And so she's going to be building on from her talk last week. And then when we meet on Sunday at Hope Chapel, there'll be an opportunity to, to dig into this some more. So, uh, Lord, as Alice speaks to us, uh, we pray that you're... You're the voice, the big voice that we hear. We want to hear what you're saying to us. We want to grow and come into your likeness in the way we live our lives. So we pray you feed us now and you inspire Alice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yes, I'm really excited to come back and do part two of uh, Purpose Talk. Please, if you haven't listened to part one, it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. Part one was Purpose and the human longing in the Hebrew Bible. And part two today is purpose and the human longing fulfilled in Jesus. That is the claim of the New Testament writers, completing a whole biblical worldview on purpose. So if you don't take anything else away, take this image away of a bullseye in terms of purpose. So if you imagine an archery target, we're going to be looking at these three aspects, getting closer and closer in to the heart of the issue. The biggest issue we have to contend with first is in order to access purpose or connect with it, we have to have a worldview. We have to simply believe in the reality of God. We have to see that God exists. He's real. Everything has is fully immersed and energized by his presence. And humans particularly are distinct in that we are made in the image of God for a specific purpose. That is our, our big overarching narrative. We cannot access purpose without that. And I'll come to that in a minute. But if you imagine elephants and you imagine a human house, if you're trying to get elephants into a human house, they will. Elephants are lovely. Human houses are lovely. But the human house is not made to house elephants. So an elephant in a human house would destroy it and trash it, possibly injure themselves really, really quickly. If you put humans in a human house, they will thrive, it will work. And if you put elephants in an elephant enclosure, they will thrive, they will work. So the first alignment that needs to happen is we need to put humans in a world that where we are made in the image of God, God exists. We will never access purpose without that, and I'll come to that a bit more. And then the second area within that overarching way of seeing the world, as I call it, a metanoia is simply a change of mindset, a, a, a revealing, a seeing the way things really are, a repentance. After we've had that genuine big repentance about the way the world actually is, the second one is, if you like, the macro purpose for all of humans, the why is stewardship. And I'm actually going to give a little example of stewardship now and in our own life as to how that connects with purpose. But the example I'm giving could be anything, fill in a blank of any area of your life. It could be relationships, it could be the environment, it could be money, it could be work, it could be anything. But in order to begin to tap in, micro-purpose, our own actual purpose, in the middle of the bullseye, we need to connect with stewardship. Because in the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives, at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, God created humans, male and female, in his image, and he created them to rule in partnership with him 
and essentially steward the created order. So the macro purpose for humans is stewardship. And I'm going to give a little example now about how that stewardship works in our own life. And so we can begin to immerse ourselves. So first thing we need to do is believe in God. Within that, we then need to steward what we're given. So we used to live in a flat, Chris and I, before we had children and then when our children were really young. And the flat was lovely and the kitchen was really small and didn't have a dishwasher. The table was in like the main living room, which had everything else in it, like the sofas. And when we had small children, it was their kind of plastic toy area as well. And we felt that we wanted to host. We wanted to have people over, offer hospitality and cook for people. Now, at that stage, I didn't really think I could cook anything but sausages. And apologies now to vegetarians and nutritionists and vegans that that was what I could offer. But I was something about I could do bags and mash and toad in the hole, and that was about it. So I could have said, we can't host. We can't. We, We haven't got a big enough kitchen. We haven't got a dishwasher. I can't cook. And our... It's too difficult, especially with the early years with children. But actually, we just had this sense in us to steward what we're given. In fact, I felt God saying, steward what you're given in terms of what you can do rather than what you can't do with what's already in your hand, and I'll give you more. So I, every time I did a weekly shop, I learned a new recipe and just put it into the weekly shop. Um, I, we washed up everything, even if we cook for a lot of people, we hand-washed everything, and we just made it work in our main room by putting, tidying up completely all the children's toys away each night into their bedroom, and then making it an adult space in the evening. And then, amazingly, we were able, through a really exciting story, but we were able to move into the house we're now living in now, as, as we were able to rent it, which was a real gift at the time. And I worked out it saved me two hours a day having a dishwasher and then an extra room for children's toys because suddenly we have more space. But again, we could have said in that house, because it's different to how the house is now. If you come and see our house now, we've done some building work. But when we first got it, it was broken up into different rooms and it was quite dark and old design. We could have said... Well, we can't really host because we're renting here. It's not really our house. We can't really host because it doesn't look the way we want it to look. And we can't really host because we don't know how long we're going to be here as a result. But we didn't have that. We had this sense. We we start today, and I think the week we moved in, we had a whole bunch of people over, and they had people around, and we went into a zone celebrating people, whether it's play dates, birthday parties, evening meals, and so on. And then we kind of had the same, we felt God was beginning to speak to us that we might be able to buy the house, which was really exciting. But before that, we went and found this amazing table. It was a large table in a beautiful kind of uh, shop. And we couldn't actually fit that table in the house before it we'd done the work on it and changed it and made it more open plan, which meant firstly buying the house and then doing the work. So we had this table and we were, this felt like this table summed up our approach. We want to host and offer hospitality and build community. 
And yet we didn't actually, couldn't fit the table physically into any spaces in the house. But we, so we prayed, is it right to get the table and just have this sense of an imprint of a footprint on grass and that sense of the promised land, take the promised land. So we actually bought the table. We had to take it apart and hide it behind our bed or, you know, keep it, store it behind our bed in our bedroom. And then amazingly, we were able to buy the house, but we did do the work and the table now does fit in perfectly. And when you come round to our house, it's like, a sense uh, of one of our tastes of God saying, this is your promised land. This is the place that God has, that God has for you. This is inherently connected to your purpose. And so I think that is a really helpful trajectory. If you remember from the beginning, we couldn't cook, we didn't have much space and um, we didn't think we could do it in the next place because it was a rental for all sorts of reasons we could have missed on 15 years of stewarding what was already available to us. And when God gives us something to steward, he sees how we handle it and then gives us more. So just to encourage everyone in terms of purpose, the big picture, if you believe in God, you know you're created in his image, loved by him, his plans and purposes for your life, but you're not quite, you don't feel you have clarity on the specifics, well, steward what's already in your hand, whether it's people, relationships, whether it's um, a, a room you're in, whether you can offer a cup of tea to someone or a listening ear or money, whatever it is, steward what you already have and he will clarify Remember that word promised land that he gave to us and give you more. And then the third image on the, uh, uh, yeah, and actually the more is quite funny at the moment. I, can you put up that next image? Is we're now having Sam live us, which has totally raised the game in terms of food. He's a complete foodie. He's very humble about it, but he kindly cooks once a week and it's always something really exciting, like Middle Eastern food. And as a result, we, he's upped our game and we're now reading this book and it has an epic line in the salt chapter which says feel the illicit thrill of indulging with something you've been told to be scared of your entire life which is quite funny when it's referring to salt by a cook anyway we, so that is expanding where I've read that chapter on salt and I was in around halfway through it maybe the beginning and I was like I feel like I've never cooked in my life once hundreds and thousands of meals, but I feel like I'm starting again. So even that area of my life it is continually expanding and being raised. Thank you, Sam. Iron sharpening iron there, raising the bar, definitely. And then the third stage of this bullseye, if you like, the kind of the bullet point, the right at the centre is the personal, where we actually do the specific things God has called us to do, where there's actual purpose. So those are, if you like, the three movements we're going to make to the personal in this talk. So the first one I'm going to say again is, is, is having a mindset that believes in the reality of God. It is impossible to find purpose unless we believe God exists. And I, if, we, if you hear the, the talk from last week and see the quote by the author of the trilogy, as uh, Sapiens being the first one, uh, Harari, Yuval Harari talks about there is no purpose, there is no meaning if we are genuinely subject to blind evolutionary processes. But that actually isn't a, a very modern idea. 
In the ancient world, purpose was not in anyone's thinking either. Fatalism, what will be, will be, is actually the only other counter-narrative, really. There's either purpose or there's fatalism. It just is dressed differently and there's more different sophisticated language in different cultures. But in the ancient world, the Babylonian narratives where humans were created to be slaves to the gods, and we go into that in a series I, we've done in April 2021 about the message of Genesis 1 to 11. So it's extremely countercultural in the first two narratives of the Hebrew Bible to say actually we were created in the image of God for a purpose. In Islam, the, the famous words at the beginning of the Quran are we are slaves to Allah. So slaves to the gods or in a, in a more monotheistic age, we're talking about now 6th, 7th century AD, we're slaves to Allah and now in secular ideology we're slaves to blind evolutionary processes. So in a sense, although they look different and the wording is different, the narrative is the same. We're either created in the image of God who has revealed himself as we will see in the person of Jesus, and there is purpose on our life, or there is no purpose. We are, there is a fatalistic, what will be, will be. We are just subject to forces, call them what you like, gods, Allah, or blind evolutionary processes. However, Jewish and later Christian or Messianic Jewish teaching uniquely introduces the concept of human purpose, which dignifies humanity to volitional friendship with God. We are no longer slaves, Jesus says, or servants, but we are friends. We are partners, as we were designed to be in the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives. Uh, this beautiful memoir by the psychiatrist Victor Frankl talks about the need for meaning in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, reflecting on his descriptions of life in Nazi death camps. And he absolutely resonates with this. We need meaning. We need to feel that what we're doing has purpose. Sorry, excuse me, excuse me. He says, that that's from Mark Sayers, I'm going to quote that in a minute. But he says, Viktor Frankl says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. It's just a beautiful uh, summation of his journey and his encouragements with others who've been through exceptionally harrowing circumstances. But I think that really helps build the argument that I began last week, that there's this massive cognitive dissonance, between, particularly with young people, when they're told intellectually from birth and from five when they, we start going to school that you are, you are a chemical accident simply made alive by a dying star, kept alive. And then the reality of, of trying to look for work and meaning and purpose in life is producing this chronic, prolific cultural anxiety. The resilience that Viktor Frankl seems to, seems to identify and find is simply not there in people who have far, far easier, in inverted commas, circumstances. So going back to his quote, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. That is so profound. If we know why we're here, God is good, he is loving, he's created us in his image for partnership with him to rule in his wisdom. We can have a resilience, we can persevere. In the, in the image that I used last week, the mountain, then you go down with the call of God's promise, down into the valley of challenge, then you, there is a perseverance, a persistence, there's a, a resilience, a resoluteness in the why, because we know why. 
that enables us to be sustained and persevere until the breakthrough, the prolific fulfillment of our why word being fulfilled. So how is the human longing exposed in the Hebrew Bible, which is exposed in the Hebrew Bible we talked about last week? How is that fulfilled in Jesus? The New Testament writers claim a uniquely messianic fulfillment of those that he, that human longing. And I've, I'm really grateful to Michael Morales for this and uh, amongst other scholars who helped me see some of the movement of the narrative arcs in the Hebrew Bible, which Jesus completely fulfills in the New Testament. So you can see there's this tension between human flourishing and human failure all the way through the Hebrew Bible. And then we get to the New Testament and there's this desire and hunger for a human to come, an anointed one who will not fail who will actually succeed in establishing human flourishing. So we begin with pre-creation waters, which would have represent chaos and death, being split in the Genesis days two and three narrative, and dry ground suitable for human flourishing appearing. And then in Genesis two, humanity is on this mountain garden of Eden, designed in the image of God to rule. But tragically, they fail. They want to rule in their own wisdom. And it descends into violence where they were blessed to fill the land. It says, tragically, beginning of Genesis 6, humans filled the land with violence. So then the, the waters that have been split in the day and two, three narrative now come back together again. Recreation, flood waters. It's like a new creation and a new humanity. Noah and his family are blessed on a new mountain garden, Ararat, to fill the land. But tragically, they descend into Babel, the origin story of Babylon, this idea that humans can rule in their own wisdom, the tower we can make, we can get to the gods, get to heaven, get to understanding in independence from God, and the nations are scattered. Abraham is called out of those post-Babel nations, as we learned last week. He's given a land suitable for human flourishing. He's told to be blessed to be a blessing. He fails nine times in trusting God, but on the tenth time, he trusts God with the most precious thing to him, his own son. Not only the most precious thing, he loved his son, but also the fulfillment of God's promise through whom he'd be the father to the nations. That very thing he was willing to sacrifice on the top of another mountain, Moriah. But tragically, after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, through Joseph's story and his brothers trying to kill him, him selling him to slavery in Egypt, there's a descent into Egypt, which actually ends up in 400, increasing oppression to slavery. God calls Moses, as we've learned, he hears the cries of the oppressed people and he splits the waters again, like that creation and those other narratives, the Noah narratives, he splits the waters and reveals a place of Eden through Moses's tabernacle, the imprint of tabernacle to Moses on the top of another mountain, Sinai. But tragically, they, the, the new the newly birthed, delivered, healed, restored nation of Israel refused to just worship Yahweh and they descend into idolatry, the worship of other gods and also worshiping Yahweh in their way. They want to worship him rather than as he actually is. And they are subject not only to wanderings in the desert, but when they do eventually under Joshua take the promised land of Canaan, promised hundreds of years earlier to Abraham, they, they start to worship the gods of the nations around them and again practice syncretism, Yahweh in their own way. Yahweh involves some of those na- national and tribal Canaanite gods there. 
However, there's a movement up to a golden age in Israel under David on, again, another mountain, Mount Zion, where it is said to be the same site that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He has a desire to have a temple built to host God's presence, to host Eden once again. And his son Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem, now the capital city of the United Nation of Israel. But tragically, in Solomon's life, he turns away to idols and and the, the nation descends again over hundreds of years, not only through exile and sin, back into exile, into Babylon, where Abraham was originally called out of. And they are subject to foreign oppression. There is a beautiful moment where under Persia, the next empire, there's a remnant who return and they worship, establish worship there and restore Solomon's temple and call it Zerubbabel's temple under the leader, Zerubbabel at the time. But even then, there's mixture, there's corruption in the priesthood, there's a descent to idolatry, there's continued foreign oppression. Persia capitulates to Greece and then Greece to Rome. And then we have the New Testament. There's a longing for a human, a Mashiach, an anointed one who won't, who won't fail at the mountaintop moment will stay forever who won't relinquish human flourishing, who who will partner with God to establish human flourishing on the dry land, who will walk in intimacy with him and choose God's wisdom, choose to rule in his own wisdom and define good and evil, tov and ra, according to God's understanding. And there's this, this, this person, Jesus, who's written about, and there are so many ways he fulfills this narrative arc he goes through the waters of death in his baptism. He goes into a, a desert period, but chooses to rule in God's wisdom rather than his own. He surrenders to his father in another garden, the garden of the olive press, where olives are pressed so that the oil of life, olive oil, is, is poured out, garden of Gethsemane. And finally, he's raised high on a mountain where heaven and earth meet. At his crucifixion, he is enthroned as a king and is the perfect atoning sacrifice for all the ways humans have failed. So through Jesus, there is a way back to human flourishing. In his death, he took on all human failure. And in his resurrection, he invited all of humanity into the true new way to be human. Partnership with God, ruling in God's wisdom, defining good and evil according to God's understanding so that everyone flourishes under humanity's care. So this new Adam, this new human, has a new Eve, a new partner, who is the followers, the church, the bride of Christ, all of humanity included, are invited in to this new family. In Christ, all humans can flourish again. So the New Testament clearly is arguing that Jesus succeeds where all other humans fail. And in him, heaven and earth can meet again on God's terms, not our own, which works in every way possible. And in him, there is purpose for all humans. The purpose has been recovered. And we see these images of intimacy and partnership with God all the way through, particularly John's narratives in the Gospel of John about Jesus. But also, um, Andrew, that Stantry and I were talking about this the other day, and he helped me see in the parable of the two sons, where Jesus, if you like, is the third son that isn't written about overtly, but we can see he's there too. 
So there's three, there's, there's a parable, it's called the prodigal son usually, but it's really about two lost sons. One's lost in overt rebellion, he leaves his father's house, which in, in Jewish culture would be saying you're dead. Um, and he goes off to a faraway land, spends his inheritance, ends up in the pig's trough, which is unclean in Jewish thinking, but has a re- returns to his senses, recovers his true identity, his, he remembers where he's come from and returns from a far off place, the father's house, the father welcomed him with compassion, welcomed him in, treats him not only as a son but as a royal son and celebrates and has a feast because he's home. But the older son, tragically, who hasn't left the home, is out working in the fields, is angry with his father and he, in the census, shows a covert rebellion, a rebellion against sonship and significance and identity. A, I have to serve you. I, it's my duty and my obligation, the, the sort of bitter self-indulgence of the religious spirit. And we don't know how that story ends. It just ends with the father pleading with the older son to come into the party. But we don't ever know if the older son comes home. And within that narrative, there is the third son, Jesus, who knows how to live in the father's house, who knows what it is to be a friend of God, to partner with him in creating a place of human flourishing. And it's this friendship which is so key to our purpose, both friendship with God and in Christ, friendship with people. Going back to that stewardship uh, that stewardship image I used earlier. Often we, we may say things like, well, I don't really have the right people in my life. I'm not really in the right stage in my life. I maybe not, um, I'm not married yet or I don't have this or I haven't got that and therefore I can't. And what I love about the stewardship principle is we steward what's in front of us and he can. So he may have provided us with an abundance of friends and relational wealth. We just might be looking in the wrong places or with the wrong value system. He may have already, he actually probably already has provided and we need to steward the people in front of us rather than the imaginary people over the hilltop. When we steward what we're given, we're given more. And what's interesting in the Hebrew Bible is it's quite hard to find a word translated purpose. There isn't really anything because probably in the ancient world that wasn't really in anyone's thinking. It was kind of forged through the writers and the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. But words like heart are really key. Wisdom for the sake of, to do with delight and prosperity and success. These can all be translated as well as purpose. It's particularly linked with a personality in the, and the character of God and of humans made in God's image. It's uniquely tied with a belief and confidence in God finding our purpose. In the New Testament, though, purpose is more of a forged idea, probably built on the back of that narrative that's grown in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And there are two or three words which are consistently translated purpose. One of them is also translated as consecrated, particularly with reference to consecrated bread in the tabernacle. And I find that absolutely fascinating because this gets us right to the place of the personal. There's a general stewardship. We generally see God. We believe in him, going back to that bullseye. There's a general stewardship of life because that's generally what we humans are designed to do. And then there's a specific moment where we we actually surrender our own lives, every area of our lives to him because we're consecrated, set apart, made distinct for his purposes 
just as Jesus lived a fully consecrated life in order to fulfill his purpose, a fully surrendered life, really explicitly demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, not my will, my will to live and not have to endure the suffering, the agony, the shame and the execution of the cross, but your will, the will of what it takes to establish human flourishing on the dry land again, your will be done. That moment of surrender is the, is the access point, is the arrow, the painful arrow access point into the abundant life of purpose that God has for us. So I don't think it's an accident that purpose and consecration have similar links in many, in quite a number of passages in the New Testament. I'm going to look at two or three of them now. What's the first one? Romans 8.28. What's the next one after that? Uh, Romans 8.28. Romans 12.1-2. And then Romans 12.1-2. So Romans 8.28, the word purpose can is author is that same word that can be linked... Um, don't translate it consecrated. Romans 12, if you like, doesn't use the word purpose, but builds this whole momentum together as to our response. It, Romans 1 to 9, 11, if you like, Paul says the whole mo- movement or momentum of the Hebrew Bible how that's all fulfilled in Jesus. And then he says, in response, verse 12, therefore offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That is an image of consecration, an image of of us giving our bodies over to God's purpose for our lives. And like the bread was consecrated in the temple or tabernacle it, it, to, for a specific set apart purpose for God to use according to his will. And we're all called as believers in Christ to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is in fact our spiritual act of worship. In that process of surrender, We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So what we think is the thing that's killing us, we're laying down our own constructions, our own sense of identity, what we think will make us happy or successful, our dreams, our disappointments, everything. As we lay that all down, ironically, what happens is a much, much better resurrection, a resurrection where we are so changed in our mindsets about what's true and real that we actually embody the will of God and the purpose of God in our lives. This isn't an intellectual process. It says, so we will, in our the way we feel, the way we perceive and interact with the world, we will discern his good, pleasing and perfect will. We will embody it. We will live in it volitionally. The heart change that's so needed from human failure to human flourishing in Christ is fully successful through the process of surrender. Paul says again, we are God's masterpieces in that root word poema from which we get poem, created anew in Christ to do good works, which God created in advance for us to do. And we see this act of consecration isn't, and it isn't suddenly out of the blue. This has been a preparation through the Hebrew Bible. If you see at every mountaintop I talked about, there is, there is a, a sacrifice, some form of sacrifice. Noah brings a pleasing aroma right back on Ararat. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
at the top of Mount Sinai, the tabernacle is given to Moses, at the heart of which is, establishes the sacrificial system. On David's Mount Zion, Solomon's temple similarly has that, and that worship, that sacrifice is resort, restored in Zerubbabel's temple. So when Christ is raised up on that mountain, he is fully surrendered. It's a consecration. It's an act of worship, a pleasing aroma to God. And we meet him in that place. And in that place, we discover our purpose. Cain and Abel, people believe, the narrative is set at the gate of Eden because at some level they know it's only sacrifice that only by death, absorbing death, can we access Eden, humanity's flourishing heaven and earth once again. So whilst Jesus has perfectly fulfilled that need for sacrifice and consecration, he invites us into it in order to partner with him. Paul talks rather tenderly about fellowship, the the intimacy of sharing in Christ's suffering. Something happens to us as we partner with Jesus in that surrendered, consecrated life. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. As we die in surrender to Christ, what happens if you remember the mountaintop, the valley, the mountaintop, the much more devastating way of humans, which is building up to Babel, building up to heaven on our own terms, redefining evil on our good and evil on our own terms, causing untold death, destruction, and, and evil in the world, that dies. Babel dies. And you find that however it happens between the promise and the prolific fulfillment, whatever that process looks like, whether it is just human sin, which it is really with Saul, he's just, he's jealous of David. And it is with Joseph, his brothers are jealous. Or whether we might have the veil lifted a bit with Job, who goes through a similar, uh, incredible life where he loses, then he loses everything, and then everything's restored in abundance. But we have the veil lifted as readers that there is a the Satan, there's a divine counsel. One of these spiritual beings is called the accuser. In Hebrew, that is the Satan, and he is able to wreak havoc on humanity. And whether God allows things to happen, we don't know that mystery. But what we do know is when we go through that process and come out the other side, we want to rule in partnership with God and not build Babylons and Babels and towers to our own, meet our own deep needs of insignificance and worthlessness outside union with Christ. So there's something about that process of hearing God, hearing his will, hearing his purpose, going through a deconstruction of all the things we thought would make us successful, and then him reconstructing us into the new humanity in Christ that is both a one-off, it's both an ongoing event, it's both a lifelong journey, it's a daily consecration. And we have, we will experience it in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different areas of our life. So that micro, we come to that micro through surrender, through consecration, through following Jesus' footsteps, who surrendered everything for God's will of human flourishing. And in him, we come to that place of surrender and consecration too. And I just want to give a couple of examples in history. These are quantifiable. These are finite. You can see a beginning and a middle and end. There'll be many stories like this that haven't been told, that are still to finish, that where people are still in process, but the abundance is going to come. And there are 
And there are other stories we will never know, but maybe one day we'll know. So apologies if they seem quite narrow and quite specific to maybe my own Christian tradition, but I find them helpful because they are exact examples where individuals and communities have gone through that process of consecration. The first one is someone called John Wimber, who someone some of you may have heard of, some of you won't. But he came out of the Jesus movement, which in turn came out of Pentecostalism at the turn of the century in America, the turn of the 20th century. And then by about the 1960s and 70s, it really hit sort of hippie movement, particularly in California. And loads of people came to follow Jesus out of backgrounds of um, addiction and just and, and partying and that whole lifestyle. And John Wimber was part of, he, he encountered the Holy Spirit at that time, and he was a musician, he was a very gifted one, and he was actually um, a, a part of a band at that time called the Righteous Brothers, which most people won't have heard of anymore, but at the time was it was becoming uh, a global, certainly in America, a global success. But he felt God ask him to lay down guitar, lay down worship, for a while, and that was really something he found his identity in, something he was very good at, and he loved, but he felt that the Holy Spirit was asking him to lay it down, the most precious thing to him, a bit like Abraham being asked to lay down Isaac, the most precious thing to him, and he did, he did for a time, for a season, he laid down all forms of, of singing and playing his guitar. And what is incredible about his heart is he, he seemed to have that that there was a sort of freedom and purity to him because he'd laid down the thing that was most precious to him and could have been the source of his identity and he could have built a Babel or a Babylon on it, but he, he laid it down. And actually it was restored back to him in his life. He, he did come back to playing um, his instrument and worship. And what happened through him and through a movement that came out of him and that that time in history called the Vineyard Churches, that movement, but it also affected loads of Anglican churches, which is my historical denomination across the, the UK and other countries and many other denominations. What happened was worship before that really globally was in all sorts of traditions was was declaring the goodness and, and glory and praise of God was speaking about him. And through that movement and that moment, and particularly part that he played a significant role in that, it came worship also alongside acknowledging awe and worship of God became a place where people could love God personally, could have intimacy in worship, could experience him in worship, could sing to him not just about him. Now, some of us may take that for granted completely, and some of us may even come to a place where we're beginning to critique that, but I will never, ever stop being grateful for the moment in history where I can now experience God in intimacy and worship, and it will be many, many reasons. We're a global community, and there are many factors, but there is one man I just want to honour who laid down his own, he could have had a career and, and publicity and success, celebrity success as a, as a musician, but he laid it down because he wanted Jesus more and he wanted the kingdom more. And the prolific fulfillment is still going on in the world today. Think of any, any church, particularly in English speaking languages, but I've even heard them in other where English is not the primary language and the way people worship in fastest growing arm of the church, which is Pentecostalism, is 500 million out of 
global one to two billion, almost all of it has been influenced by this move from singing about God to singing to him and in contributed to significantly by a man who said, I'm going to put Jesus before my own celebrity success. Really inspiring man. And then finally, the other ones that we've talked about before, a community called the Moravians. They were just 24 people, refugees in central of Europe who took an hour to pray day and night and they would have had no idea. Their life was consecrated. They would have lived the first lot and died and not known anything about the impact they were bringing. But it started a 100-year, 24-7 prayer movement. And at the same time coming in into that season was one man who called John Wesley, who had a passion and a desire to, to know God. He went to America. He had the promise over his life. He went to America, the colonies of the British Isles at the time, and he failed. Things went wrong for him out there and he returned on a boat across the Atlantic, a failure. He hit his valley where the process of transformation was happening. And in that boat, he met the Moravians and he saw, he said to them, I've seen something in you I've never seen before. And he went to some meetings later on and famously said his heart was strangely warmed. He breaks, God raises him, if you like, his ministry, his person from the dead. And he becomes a prolific game changer in the, in the history of the church history generally, but specifically in the UK. He's accredited with his movement because he partnered with many, many men and women across the nation. But his movement is accredited with stopping England having the revolutions that were happening in France and America because it was it, he was dignifying the Holy Spirit, was dignifying the more oppressed classes, raising them up to literacy levels, reducing domestic violence and alcoholism in in a generation, and establishing a new, if you like, literate middle class, saving people not only in terms of their union with God, knowing they were loved, but also from their sociological the poverty that they were they were often born into prolific fulfillment of a promise going through a valley meeting another group who had consecrated their lives and saw their movement prolifically fulfilled so to encourage everyone we believe in god we see him we steward what's in front of us and then we surrender the most personal thing to us that is the entry point to purpose there is no other way to access purpose we have to go there. But when we do go there, it says, Jesus says, if a seed, unless a seed falls to the ground, it cannot bear fruit. It just stays a single seed. We could all stay single seeds, but if we allow ourselves to go to the ground, we can be, we can see his word in us prolifically fulfilled, fulfilled with an abundant fruitfulness and resurrection, which we may see in our lifetime, but may occur after our death. But as Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain.